Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. My name is Guy. I'm from Guy's Woodshop, and I'm joined by Hui Huin of the Alabama Woodworker. Hey, Guy. And Sean Walker. Good evening, fellas. Of Simple Co. fame. That's right. <laughs> this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also have a new Patreon account, and right now we have one level, and we are simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the costs of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. And uh, make sure you listen all the way to the end of the show. We're going to give a shout out to some folks we think are notable woodworkers to follow on social media. So let's get right into it. And then we, you have the first question. Okay. So this question is from Bart from Belgium. And he asks, I've recently bought a good planer joiner combo machine. It uses three planer knives in the cutter block. I won't be using it enough to consider an upgrade to some sort of helical head cutter head. So I've been thinking about a practical way to sharpen the knives. I've come to a jig, some sort of wood block with an insert for one knife. The top surface of the block is tilted in such a way that my water stones have support for the correct angle when I use them to sharpen the edge. The jig works, but I'm wondering if there's a more practical, faster way to sharpen. I see the Tormek sells a sharpening system that does this, but since it costs more than the helical cutter block, I find that too expensive. My question is, do you know of an affordable sharpening system for planer knives? Mine are 10 inches long. Bart, the jig that you're talking about is uh, actually, it sounds like it's a homemade jig or that you made this jig. There is a jig called a Doolin jig, a Doolin jointer planer knife sharpening jig. And it's it's got these like brass inserts that are angled at 45 degrees so that when you put your jointer planer knives in there, uh, you can do two of them at a time and lay them flat on a piece of abrasive paper, sandpaper, and sharpen your planer knives that way. So that jig that you came up with actually is a, a something available that is mass produced as well, commercially available. Now I've also seen people use their grinding wheels. So uh, like a Wolverine <laughs> jig um, to sharpen their planer knives. And I think actually John Highs on YouTube actually has a planer blade sharpening jig that he uses on his grinder. But the problem with that is that it removes a lot of material. It removes it very fast. And you can heat, I imagine you can heat that steel up too, if you're not, because that's yep, how and you can blow that heat. steel up real easy. Yeah. Now, for me, I'm going to, when I had straight knives on my jointers, I bought two sets of blades. And when my blades went, got dull, I took them to a professional sharpener and had them done. And it was 10 or $12 yeah. to get them done. That's what I would do. And I think that's the safest way because the sharpener has the correct tools at the correct angles and they do it really fast. And I get them back in a couple of days. I swap them out. It was no downtime. Do you, do you know of a, of a place online that he could send them to? Gosh, you know, I should have looked it up. I, I don't know of a place well, online, uh, but... Well, I, don't, I don't know how much it's going to help. He's from Belgium. Yeah, that's so. true. I, I forget about that. But I've seen some crazy things online of, of people even sharpening their joiner blade. And I'm not saying to do this. Don't do this. But I've seen people do this where they're sharpening their jointer knives with the machine on. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. Do not do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. Don't I've seen that. three different methods. <laughs> One, William Ng has a video on YouTube showing you how to make a, a really awesome, 
it's complex because it's a William Ng jig. Um, <laughs> yeah. how, to, how to build a jig <laughs> with uh, some MDF and to use your sharpening stones. I believe there's sharpening stones. Uh, mm-hmm. So check that out. The second thing, I actually purchased one of the honing guides that you stick two of the blades in at a time. Mm-hmm. It worked. It wasn't perfect. The main issue I ran into is I didn't have long enough fine grit sandpaper because the blades were 12 inches long. And that was pretty much the the length of the paper that I had. So that was one consideration or one thing that I ran into that, uh, that stopped me from using it. Um, I used them once or twice. But it didn't come out just perfect, and I didn't have the correct paper, so I just bought a second set of blades, um, and then I ended up putting the helical head in there. A third thing that I did see that Fine Woodworking had was a way to lock with the machine unplugged, lock the head, and then so that the blade or the the, the bevel of the blade is at a, the correct angle that you can use your uh, sharpening stones to sharpen it with the uh, machine off. So you mm-hmm. can turn your head so that the bevel, I think, was parallel with the, the bed. Anyways, Fine Woodworking has an article that will show you how to use your stones with them in the jointer. Uh, so those are the three methods that I'm aware of. I, I had one of those, that's like a little thing you hold in your hand and it's got some stones in it and you rub it back and forth against the blade. Mm-hmm. I had those for a long time and they actually worked fairly well. It was like, you know, a $15, $20 item that I bought in the, the, the mid nineties, I think. And, uh, it worked pretty decent. Then I upgraded to, and I still actually have it. It's a Makita wet grinding wheel. The wheel itself is horizontal Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and there's a special jig that you can buy for it that holds planer blades up to 12 inches long. It wasn't cheap. I bought that and I think 98 and it was around two or $300. I know they still make it and it works really, it worked really, really well. And I had that, you know, I, I said, I still have it. But the only reason I got that is because when I bought it, I was, I first moved out here in Indiana and I moved in the middle of nowhere and there was nowhere to, to get anything sharpened. So you know, I, I bought that. I bought that. There's got to be a place that he could send it to in Belgium. I'm sure. Yeah, sure that, would, that and and that that would really be my recommendation. Bart is to find somebody locally or to find somebody within that part of the world that you can ship these things to that will sharpen them for you. Again, that's that's my best, biggest, best recommendation there. That's what I did, and it it always they always come out. Perfectly sharp. I think that answers it in terms of what what's available, and it sounds like he's he's got something that does work. And probably the best thing that we could all recommend is find a, sharp, a good sharpener that you can find a sharpening dude. Yeah, they're not that prevalent. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd be surprised if you look. Anyway, so Sean, I believe the question next one's yours. My question is from Martin. And he asks, you've mentioned some of the books you've relied on, and I appreciate that since I'm a green as grass beginner and benefit from any source of information that I get. I'd also like to hear you talk about the mentors or the teachers you had who helped you shape your skills. Have any of you taken formal classes or gone to woodworking schools? I know that the best way to develop skills is by building furniture and learning from mistakes, but I also hope to participate in a class sometime, if only to find an active woodworking community. 
That is an awesome question. Uh, and I think it's an important one that I'm glad that we're talking about. My path for learning started with me actually watching guild builds over on the Wood Whisperer Guild. I didn't have any friends or family members that had power tools, let alone made furniture. That was a, not even a, a reliable source that I could go to for a mentor. And like you said, I pretty much started by building and learning from mistakes the hard way, messing up a lot of parts, rebuilding a lot of drawer boxes. And you learn a lot from those mistakes and the in-depth how-to videos on the guild, they really helped me learn the fundamentals of woodworking. And one of the most important things is it helped me get comfortable enough around the tools to learn on my own. Now, I will say that learning by watching and not being able to ask questions or have some sort of mentor point out what I was doing wrong meant that I took way, way, way longer, in my opinion, to get to a level now that I feel like a probably a year or two year long course in carpentry or several classes could teach you. So if you can find classes in your, in your area, definitely recommend taking them. Uh, learning from a mentor always allows you to fail faster, uh, which in the end means that you're going to learn faster and you're going to most importantly learn proper techniques. And in between classes at night, I would recommend practicing those core skills on building furniture for yourself. Um, and, and probably the last uh, resource that I went to was obviously magazines. And, uh, and I try to stick to what I thought at the time were really good learning resources like the, the Guild and paying for that material and magazines and didn't necessarily watch a lot of YouTubers because I felt like the Guild and the magazines were, they just had a, a level of knowledge that a lot of the YouTubers back then especially didn't have. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on this? One of my biggest benefits of having early on in my woodworking was a community shop on the military post that I work on. The big benefit there was all the uh, milling machines that they had. So like learning how to joint and plane, I had no idea that that's what you were supposed to do with material when you were building furniture or, or anything woodworking related. I had no idea you had to flatten, like it's just, the wood comes out flat, right? When you buy it, it's flat, right? No, absolutely not. And so that was a huge thing for me was having the community workshop and somebody there who knew what they were doing and explained the machinery, the proper technique, the safety measures for making sure you don't cut your fingers off. That was a huge benefit for me. And guy, I'm going to, you know, <laughs> boost you up. Not like you need to be boosted up anymore. But really early on, I watched a lot of your videos. And the reason why I liked a lot of your videos was because they were long format videos Nothing, not that there's anything wrong with the five minute video and you see somebody build something at the end yeah, of it. See what I've made. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you how I did it, but I'm just going to show it to you. Yeah, exactly. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I wanted an explanation and I wanted to understand joinery. I wanted to understand the more in-depth things about woodworking and not just use it as a, as a form of entertainment. I wanted to learn. Uh, and then, of yeah. course, the magazines. And so, you know, Guy, you know, you you know this because I've told you before, but you you were huge in the beginning. But, you know, the unfortunate thing is that it was just online. Right. So I had to have that physical form. I had to have my hands on tools and on materials in order to really learn. And man, that the community shop was was just huge for me. And just having yeah. those volunteers there to help me out was was a huge benefit. You know, a, a good place to start, Martin, you know, it, it sounds like you want to go down this road. There's a lot of good information out there. And, and Hui and Sean mentioned some of those. Some of the best stuff that you can really sink your teeth into if you can't get to a woodworking classes 
watch some of the old Norm Abrams videos. Oh, I love those. <laughs> All that stuff is online. You can find it on YouTube. David Mark's stuff is the same thing. Mm-hmm. He had a TV show that was, you know, much a much higher level than what Norm was doing. But Norm will give you a lot of really good, solid, do it this way kind of information. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking to do a certain procedure or operation, <clears throat> he always has a couple different ways to skin a cat and he's very good at explaining to it or explaining it to you. Uh, I'd recommend that. There are some good woodworking schools. It really depends on where you live. Yeah. I know here in the Midwest, we have the Mark Adams School of Woodworking, which is considered a very good school. And a lot of people come here. Sean mentioned the guild builds from the Wood Whisperer. That's another really good, you know, the classes aren't expensive. They're not cheap, but they're not expensive. You know, they're, they're under $100 in most cases, I think, mm-hmm. uh, especially for the older ones. Grab a couple of those. And Mark is just a, a, a great teacher. He really explains things very well. There's some good stuff out there on YouTube. There's a lot of bad stuff on YouTube. Mm-hmm. But there is some good stuff on YouTube um, that you can check out. You know, Mark Spagnuolo has good videos out there. Uh, Matt Cremona used to put out free videos. And he's got some good stuff in his older catalog. Brian Grella from Garage Woodworks does real good stuff. Mm-hmm. Hui did a couple good video series. Sean does some stuff on on video, uh, which were all very good. I don't always agree with what Sean and Hui are doing, but <laughs> uh, there is some good stuff out there, and don't be afraid of that. And and Hui was absolutely right where he's saying, you know, hey, you got to you got to do it. You have yeah. to get some tools, and you have to start doing it. So. Learn how to use the tools safely and then start building. Yep. And if you make mistakes, well, you make mistakes. You, you will make plenty of those. I, I still have a really large cherry drawer that was made for some end tables that I still use in the shop because it was it was out about a quarter of an inch out of square. It was the first project that I made and it's something that I made out of solid cherry and I'm never going to throw it away. I still use it to put crap in. So you'll have plenty of mistakes, but Guy, what do you have for us for your first question? All right. So my first question is from Ryan, and it says, for router table use, is there really a difference when using a pattern bit versus a flush trim bit when you want to flush an edge up with a template? Does riding the bearing on top versus on the bottom cause any safety concern? Does one leave a better, worse edge, or does it even matter? Thanks, Ryan. Ryan, I'm going to answer uh, these questions one by one, I guess. I didn't know there's a difference between a pattern bit and a flush trim bit. Is there a difference that you guys know of? Not that I'm aware of. I think there is. I think there's a difference between having the bearing on the top and the bottom, but I don't know what that difference is. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I just I just call them pattern bits yeah. or flush trim. To me, to me, they're both the same thing. Yeah, it, it, it's, and I don't think it really, I think it's just people that want things to be, have a different meaning when there really isn't. Anyways, bearing on top versus bearing on the bottom cause any safety concern? No, not really. Uh, I've used templates where, you know, where let's say you've got, um, you're doing something that's uh, two and a half inches tall on your router table. 
and part of it is going uphill and the other half of it's going downhill. Mm. You may have, and you only got, you're using a, a single template for that or a pattern. You may have to switch out the router bits between a bottom bearing bit and a top bearing bit. Right. I do it all. I do it all the time. I've got I've got uh, some tall three quarter inch pattern bits. Let's call them. Mm-hmm. And they have a. I've got one with the bottom bearing and one with the top bearing, and it really depends on which way I'm going and where the template is. There's also some really good pattern bits made by Whiteside, and they're called compression bits. And you can find them a lot. A lot of the, you put them in a lot of CNC machines too, where they have the flutes that swirl both going up cut and down cut right. at the same time. So the uphill downhill thing doesn't really matter at all when you're using it. And it leaves a really nice surface to it. I don't know, what what are your thoughts on this, Wee? So I actually have one of these bits that has a bearing both on the top and the bottom. And so when you need to say, if you have an extra tall piece and you've got your pattern or your template on the bottom, you can use the bottom bearing bit and you can actually remove the top bearing so that if that piece is very tall and and if that bearing will actually interfere with the material as you're uh, pattern rounding it, it'll leave an edge and then you replace that bearing, the top bearing, lower lower the bit and now you're able to actually finish out the cut for a piece that's very, very tall. That bit that I have is a mega flush trim router bit from Infinity, and it has the two bearings. I think it has like a two inch cut or something like that, and it's also compression. But I really like the compression bits uh, guy. I know you use the white side version. Those compression bits are great because it reduces tear out. Yeah, but they're they're pricey as hell. They are very. I, th- I, th- I think when I bought I bought my white side, I think they were like a hundred and ten dollars. Yeah, yeah. I've got a really bad chip in one of mine, in one of the flutes of mine, and I was going to replace it, and it was a hundred and seventy five bucks. I almost made in my pants. I'm like, I don't believe it. How pricey it is. Went up in price, uh, huh? A little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Sean, what are you, what are you using? Um, I'm pretty much using an upcut spiral uh, flush trim mm-hmm. bit, so I don't really get too concerned about grain direction. I just plow right through it. But my key is I get as close to the template as I can, so I'm not removing much waste. Have we gone on to the second question about the safety concerns? I really don't know. if the, 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 He's asking, does riding the bearing on the top versus the bottom cause any safety concern? I really don't think so. The only thing that I can think of is that with the bearing – closest if you're in a router table the bearing i guess it'd be a top bearing the bearing closest to the the router table would leave some potentially some of the router uh some of the bit exposed on top of your workpiece if you're referencing a a pattern on the bottom of your piece that that's the only thing that comes to mind as far as it being a safety concern but you should always be using push pads yeah yeah i mean i i, I mentioned before i've got these two inch long three quarter inch wide bits that I use and one's got a bearing on the top, one's on the bottom. So if I'm, you know, three quarter inch material and I'm using a quarter inch template or pattern, that bit is sticking up, you know, an inch over the top of my, my work. And, uh, you know, I see it all the time where I see these guys, you know, they're, they're making a template, let's say for a table leg and they're cutting out the entire table leg as a template. And they're trying to pattern route using this, you know, two inch wide thing. There's nowhere to really put your hands. Myself, I like to make 
a jig for one side of that and then make a jig for the other side of it. Yeah. And then I can keep my hands a good distance away from the, the spinning bits. So using toggle clamps, uh, using that or just, you know, blocks mm -hmm. glued to the thing, whatever, just so your hands aren't, you know, they're a good six to eight inches minimum away from the, the spinning bit. If you've got the bit riding up that high. Yep. But yeah, you just got to use good common sense is, you know, the, the common sense is the best safety tool in your shop. If you start doing an operation and you're looking at it and you go, eh, that might not be too safe. Don't do it. Yeah. Think of another way to do it because that, that little bit of uncertainty in your, your mind, you know, you're, it's not worth it. If it feels unsafe, it probably is unsafe and just don't do it. And think of, think of another way to do it. So. There's my dog. There's my dog. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. Sean, you were going to say something? Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, and another important thing that I often use is uh, a pivot pin for long, you know, oh, long yeah. narrow pieces. And a pivot pin? Yeah. What's that? What do you call it? <laughs> what is it? The little pin that you screw into the top of the router table that you pivot yeah. off of. Huh? Oh, come on. You know what that is. What do you call it? Pivot pin. <laughs> uh. What a jerk. <laughs> I am. I am. It's all right. I'm gonna I'm gonna start throwing in some of these as well. I'm gonna have to troll you back. Oh, yeah, you geez. gotta you gotta throw you gotta do a little bit there. I okay. Bit. <laughs> all right. So I think the question's back to we, we now. Yep. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah, this is from Jesse, Beachland Furniture. I have a one and a half inch thick slab of cherry that is destined to be a vanity top that measures 67 inches long by 20 inches wide. Looking at finishing the top, I was going to use Epiphane Spire Varnish, but was war wary of using the, this finish because of the UV resistance. Would this inhibit the natural darkening of cherry? My other options were General Finishes Armor Seal or Water Locks. I don't have a way to spray, so conversion varnish is out of the question. My other thought was to dye the slab with lye and use the epiphanes. So I just finished a, a set of cherry dining chairs and, uh, and I actually applied Sherwin-Williams conversion varnish. And I know, Jesse, that you can't spray conversion varnish and you're not going to use that. The point is, is that Chemvar, as it's known, has UV inhibitors. And I wanted the cherry to darken with age, you know, with the UV light. And cherry has the highest prevalency of aging and mellowing and darkening over time. So, so I asked my Sherwin-Williams rep if the UV inhibitors will prevent the cherry from, from darkening from the UV light. And she explained that the UV inhibitors will slow down the darkening, but it won't prevent the UV light from affecting the cherry. Uh, so it's been about three weeks now since I've applied the conversion varnish. And I can, I can say for a fact that the wood has darkened slightly since it's been stored in, a well -lit, in my well-lit dining room. So, so the UV inhibitors will slow down the darkening process, but it won't actually stop it completely. That being said, if you want to use, you know, and this is, this is all dependent on where you're going to be storing this. If you want to use armor seal or water locks, that's a perfectly fine finish to use as well. Yeah. He's saying it's going to be a vanity top. Oh, so, so that's going to have some, yeah. some water on it, right? Yeah. It's going to be in a bathroom. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, I think maybe the best thing to do is actually get a small piece of, strip a cherry and put a couple of uh, uh, white uh, or blue painter tape strips on and just 
put some spar varnish on one and put some armor seal on another and put a water locks on another section and place it outside and see what happens. See if it darkens or uh, ages any, if you don't, if it doesn't age to the level that you want or darken to the level that you want, maybe you want to do a little bit of uh, pre-aging by, by putting the unfinished slab out in the sun for a little bit to darken it. Uh, I know some folks that have done that as well. You can also, you, you can dye. I, I don't, I've never used lye to dye. Have you guy used lye? I think you've used uh, no. potassium dichromate, right? Is that right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. So maybe, you know, you, you want to darken it with a dye or maybe even use a shellac to seal it and darken it and then apply the, uh, the epiphanes. Sean, Sean what, what do you think? To be honest with you, I would probably put a garnet shellac on it before doing it, but probably I would, I would do it sample board first. But if I was concerned at all, I would just put garn shellac on before putting the epiphanes on just to know that it's going to have a little color. That's a, that's a really good solution, Sean. I, I'm not sure, honestly. I, I've never used uh, any UV. Well, I, actually, I have been out on cherry or anything that would I would consider or worry about or wanting to darken. Yeah, the, the, the UV resistant stuff, mainly what they're talking about when they say it's UV resistant is that the, the finish is resistant to breaking down from ultraviolet light. Mm. It really doesn't have a lot. It, it does to a point, but not as much as you think of letting light shine through to the wood. The cherry's still going to darken. Yep. It's going to inhibit it a little bit, but not all that much. Uh, my suggestion for a vanity top is get a nice piece of granite or marble, and then you don't have to worry about it at all. <laughs> Such a jerk. <laughs> No, but it's a good point, but it's still funny. <laughs> no, I, I don't think general finishes armor seal or water locks no. would be a very good finish for something that's going to be seeing water. <clears throat> Spar varnish like an epiphanes would probably be about the best thing. Yeah. There's Minwax spar varnish that I've gotten before that works very well. There's Verithane. Uh, spar varnish, which you can get both of those at the big box stores that work very well. I've used both of those before and had good luck with them. Um, Epiphanes is kind of like a high-end kind of thing. Yeah. It's it's fairly expensive, mm -hmm. and I know people that have used it and had really good luck with it. But, you know, I, I, I can't say one way or the other whether it's worth, you know, probably double the money of what the – the big box store spar varnish stuff is. As far as darkening it with a chemical, I use potassium dichromate, a very light solution of that. I have set cherry out in the sun before, small pieces to get them darker, and that that does work. Give them a tan. Yep. So there's a lot of options there, but I would really try to stick with the spar varnish if it's going to be a vanity top because it's it's going to get water on it. And uh, you need something that has a really, really good water resistance to it. Or use granite. <laughs> or just get a granite or marble top. Quartz is nice, too. Yeah. Right here. All right, Sean, I think you're up next, man. Awesome. This is from Tavis. And he says, hey, guys, love the podcast, especially listening to God, because I feel like I'm listening to myself from the future. <laughs> Tavis... Tavis is my favorite listener. <laughs> In response to your recent call for more questions, I have one about tool sharpening. Specifically, what kind of honing jig to buy? I see that there are a lot of them out there, 
but do you have any recommendations on a specific one to get? I'm getting into hand tools more and more, and I want to be able to maintain my own chisels as well as restore some old planes that I have. Any advice you have, any advice you may have is much appreciated. Thanks again for being willing to share your knowledge and experience. Uh, well, let's see. I've pretty much am aware have have researched two jigs. I know there's more than this out on the market, but the two that I'm familiar with are the Lee Valley Veritas MK2 Honing Guide and the Lee Nielsen Honing Guide. And pretty much the main difference between the two are in which the way that the guide holds the blade or the chisel. The Veritas Guide, it will actually secure the blade or the chisel from the top and the bottom, whereas the Lee Nielsen Guide secures the blade or the chisel from the sides. It's a side clamping jig. Uh, now, Veritas does sell a narrow blade head that does secure the chisel from the side, but that's an add-on that you purchase separately. And I have seen people primarily use the narrow blade head for chisels and the standard head for, for plain blades because the narrow head only supports up to an inch and a half wide blades, whereas the, the standard head goes well over two inches, two and a half inches. I forgot the, the dimension. The second difference that comes to mind when thinking about these two jigs is how you set the blade in the guide. The Veritas has a blade angle registration jig that attaches to the front of the honing guide you'll set. There's little notches on the front of the guide that uh, that you'll set depending on the width of the, the blade or the chisel that you're putting in there. And then you will set the angle that you want the blade to be sharpened at on the, uh, the registration jig. Place the blade in the guide, push it up against the little reference point, clamp it down, it pinches it from the top and the bottom, and you're ready to sharpen. The Lee Nielsen guide is a bit different in that you place the blade or the chisel in the guide, and you will reference a stop block on a jig so that you, uh, you'll you build a little jig that has uh, individual little stops that are a certain distance away from the edge of the wood that you reference every time with the Lee Nielsen jig. So you're gonna have to build something for that. I personally have the Lee Valley jig, the MK2. I don't have the narrow blade guide. Um, but that's a must have for your chisels. Yeah. Because they, 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 they can tend to hone at an angle if you don't have that. That's why they made that thing. Yeah. And that's so many people are having issues with it. I was going to say, I do have issues with the bevel not being parallel to the edge. It often is skewed, which requires me to dial it in. What about you guys? What do you use? I use the Lee Nielsen version of a honing guide and, and I like it. It's, it's well machined. You look at it and you kind of think, man, that's a really expensive honing guide for what you get. And then you kind of feel it and you and you play with it and you're like, yeah, I get why it's so expensive. Like it, it's just a really well machined piece of. Yeah, but it holds it holds the blades differently than those $25 ones. Yes, yes, it does. It does, it does a better job of it. It does a much better job. The downside to owning that jig is that say you have some of those really narrow blades, you have to use a different set of draws. Uh, you know, if you've got a mortise chisel that you want to use, sharpen, you got to use a different set of jaws. And of course, those don't come with, you got to buy them. So those are, that is a little bit of a downside that you do have to buy these extra jaws for different types of uh, chisels or plane blades. But those jaws fit those tools perfectly because they are machined precisely to take those narrow chisels or those really super wide blades or those spoke shaves or blades or whatnot. Guy, what do you, I think you have the MK2, right? Yeah, I've got the, the Veritas Mark II, whatever the heck it's called, honing guide. It works well. I mean, <clears throat> the best piece of advice I can give you for, for sharpening is get good chisels that have good steel in them. Uh, you won't have to sharpen them as often to hold <laughs> the edge better. 
Yeah. That's, that's my take on it. I hate sharpening, but then again, I don't use my hand tools that much. Uh, I may do a sharpening act where I actually break out my stones and the guides maybe twice a year. If that, I keep my chisel sharp pretty much with a strop, a leather strop and a piece of MDF. That's nine times out of 10 when I'm sharpening. And when I'm doing plane blades, it's the same thing. I've got a piece of MDF that I have, whatever the green compound is, I don't even know. And mm. I just freehand it on that thing. Yep. Once I got an edge on them. And that, that's plenty sharp for me. But, but then again, I'm not using the hand tools like a lot of people using hand tools. The, the, the plane blades are more than sharp enough for me. And the chisels are more than enough sharp for me. And when they start to get to the point where I can't really keep an edge on them anymore, that's when I'll go back to my, my stones. I use uh, Shapton glass stones, which again are very expensive, but you know, that's, that's how I roll. It seems like big roller. Um, yeah. And the, um, yeah, I, don't, I don't even have that engineer rocket engineer money, <laughs> but uh, yeah. And, and I, I use the, the, the Mark two jig and it, you know, it works fine. The thing I like about the Mark II jig is you can put a, a micro bevel, a micro, micro bevel, bevel, yep, just by turning it a little bit mm -hmm. and giving it a couple passes that way. And uh, I really like that. So that is one thing that I really do like about the MK. I've used the MK2, and that's a really nice feature to just dial in that micro bevel, you know two degrees or whatever. So you're not taking off that much material. Whereas with the uh, Lee Nielsen version, you have to use a shim or something like an eighth inch shim or whatnot to add a little bit of a micro bevel from the primary bevel if you want to do it that way. Uh, yeah. Anyway, Guy, I think you've got the last question. I do, huh? Yep. This is from David. David says, first, I really enjoy the format of the podcast. I listen to a number of them, and I have to say this one is on the top of the list. Well, thank you, David. That's so nice. Uh, he's asking, I would like to get either an Inker miter sled or miter gauge. I see that they have a sled gauge combo or a sled with an integral miter gauge. Can you discuss the pros and cons of each option? And I took this question because I know both of these miter sleds really well. I've got, you know, I've, I've been using Inker for a long time and I've got, you know, a couple, three or four of their miter gauges. And the ones I used more than anything else is the Miter HD 1000, I think, which is a really solid miter gauge. And what David's talking about, um, for those that don't know, they make an accessory. Inker makes an accessory for their miter gauges where you actually drop your miter gauge into a platform that rides into the, the miter slot of your table saw and acts as a crosscut slot. It works really, really well. And they, the thing is, they say you can take your miter gauge in and out of it really easy, but you can, uh, but you do have to recalibrate it just about every time you do that. So it, it will lose a little bit there. The other thing I found out with, I think it's the, the Miter Pro or something like that, which is the one that the gauge comes out of, it's heavy. It's really heavy when you take the Miter gauge and the sled and put them together. About a year ago, I got the Miter 5000, which is their full-size crosscut sled. 
with the built-in integral miter gauge in it. And it's awesome. I can't say enough good things about it. Is it expensive? Yes. Does it work really, 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 really well? Oh, yeah. It's it's the cat's pajamas, man. I'm telling you, that thing is awesome. What's nice about it is not only can you do 90-degree cuts with surety that they're 90 degrees, it'll also do angles. Mm-hmm. And then when you put it back at 90 degrees, it's back at 90 degrees, man. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's just a, a great sled. Now, you, you've got one of those, don't you, Sean? Yeah, I have the, the Inker 5000. So yeah. pretty much in my shop, I built a little crosscut sled for small pieces up to eight inches wide. Anything after that is going in the Incra Miter 5000. Anything beyond that is a track saw, but the Incra Miter 5000 is is part of my tool set for breaking down stock. It's dead nut square. You can set the angles, like you said. It's a, a must-have tool, in my opinion, unless you want to build your own crosscut sleds. Mm-hmm. And being able to adjust it is so valuable. It, it's just, it's amazing. It, dialing in a, a crosscut sled, takes a long time and then if it gets out of whack you got to recall this is just so much easier it's like calibrating a a miter gauge you just take a a 12 inch speed square and put it on there and just boom you're done because it it it, it adjusts to the 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 edge you cut yeah it's just it's just wonderful what i like about using just the incrementer gauge is the fact that it has the tracks on there to add accessories such as different types of uh, creating different types of sleds to do different types of cuts, uh, specialty cuts. You know, if I'm cutting dovetails on the table saw or whatnot, I have a little attachment that slides onto that miter gauge so that I don't have to build a hole up sled. It's really adaptable. I really like the adaptability of the Incra miter gauge. I believe you can do the same thing with the sleds, correct? Yeah, it's the same. It's the same. It's the same bar that's on there. And I believe, guy, you've made a lot of shop-made sleds and jigs with the Incra system, correct? Yeah, <laughs> a few of them. Yeah, a few of them. <laughs> one, one, one or two. <laughs> Incra, in and of itself, it, it, it's very broad in its scope of where you can add a lot of things to it and do mm-hmm. a lot of things, and that's the way it's designed. It's a very well engineered product. Right. I don't want to turn this into an anchor commercial, but mm-hmm. uh, going back to his David's original question is, if it were me and you know like a money no object kind of thing, I would have for my miter gauge the the anchor miter gauge, but I would have the full size five thousand miter five thousand sled. Yeah. yeah. You know, Sean likes to use. He's got a small crosscut sled. He uses. I just I just use my miter gauge. Yeah. Anything over like maybe ten inches wide, then it goes on the then it goes on the sled. Would you say that if you're on a budget, maybe the Incra Miter Express is a good option? Yeah, it is. It's a good option, but it's by the time you get a miter gauge in that, it it's almost the price of the miter five thousand. Right. As I said, when you. When you take that miter gauge in and out of the sled, you got to recalibrate. Yep, you got to recalibrate it. And sometimes that's almost worth maybe the the a little extra premium to get the two things separate, right? Yeah. One thing that that I would ask is, are, are you concerned? Obviously, we're all concerned about the price, but if you're choosing between the two, you've got to ask yourself: Are you concerned with the capa- the cutting capacity? Because obviously, the ink, the miter five thousand is going to have a larger cutting capacity than the miter gauge combo. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you got yeah, they're, they're very close to the same. I think one's twenty two and the other one's twenty four. Really? 
yeah. the miter gauge combo, they look it looks a whole lot smaller to me. It is smaller. It is smaller, but still you can pull it back pretty far. And because of the way the 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 miter bar, the miter bar grips the oh, because the end of it has that tab on it. Yeah, and if it's got the tab on it, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you can push it back pretty far. I know on mine I could get almost like twenty four inches on the Miter Express because I've got that extra couple, three inches in front of my blade. Yeah, I guess you're right. It says it can easily cross cut a 24 inch deep panel. So the only difference between yeah. the two is the size of the table and you've got the yeah. expandable fence that's on the Miter 5000. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, oh well, yeah, that's true. That's true. So, but you can, you can put an expandable fence on the Miter gauge too. Well, it sounds like then I, I see no reason to buy the 5000. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Five thousand. Don, are you telling somebody to go the more expensive route? What? Well, not if you can apparently do everything on the miter gauge and buy an extension wing. Why would you? You you yeah. can, but it's it's heavier. It's a lot heavier. The miter gauge combo is. Yep. Huh. Wonder why. I don't know. That's strange. But it takes that time to take the sled and the miter gauge, and it's you know those those anchor miter gauges aren't. You know, lightweight things. Yeah, there's there's steel construction. Well, the the five thousand has one too, right? Yeah, but it's still, I don't, it just feels to me, anyways. The five thousand felt feels lighter. I don't know why. Okay, well, there you go. I I would personally, me being a a cheap woodworker, I would then go with the just the miter gauge combo <laughs> if you can pretty much do the same thing with it. Yeah, but like I said, the 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 miter gauge combo it, it can be finicky. Yeah, it can be finicky because you've got two points on the thing where you can lose the alignment between the head and the miter bar itself. Because there's a miter bar that a miter slot that's in the sled, and there's a miter slot in your table. Right, and then you've got the 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 miter head itself. You know, all three of those things have to be in perfect harmony. With the five thousand, it's just the head, and that's it. And it's really easy to to get it back into. For me, anyways, I always thought it was really easy to get. The, the 5,000 was, was a lot easier. So there you go. It's either mess with it or throw out the dough and get the 5,000. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the price difference is if you add everything. It's about $80 out. difference, I think. Oh, geez, mm. 80 bucks. What's 80 What's $80? Yeah, who cares? Yeah, go to 5,000 <laughs> then. I, it, to me, I thought that maybe it was just a smaller version, but I didn't realize it could also cross-cut the same. But yeah. I don't know if we really helped or not, but <laughs> we've given you some stuff to think about. All right. So I think that's it for the questions, isn't it? Yep. yep. Sure is. All right. And uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to recommend some folks to follow on social media. We, who do you have for us? I've got Nicholas Phillips, PhD from AF Fine Creations. Uh, it's A-F-F-I-N-E creations on instagram and he does a lot of japanese marquetry which is called yosigi i think that's how you pronounce it ton of this beautiful marquetry parquetry that he does with boxes beautiful woods that he uses and nice pastel patterns that are very beautiful very artistic i think you'd like him the stuff that he does he posts often and uh and be and he makes a lot of these small boxes and i think i i think Sean, you actually had bought one of his boxes. Am I correct about that? Yeah, sure did. He sells a lot of stuff on Etsy, and I'm telling you, it it's very reasonably priced for just how much work he puts in it and how beautiful they are. Nice, nice. With that, Sean, 
What do you got for a recommendation this week? I have at Hawthorne underscore fine underscore boxes. Hawthorne fine boxes. And they, he, I believe it's, I don't know if it's more than one guy, but, or more than one person on the, uh, on the team there, but they make beautiful, high, super high end boxes, veneered boxes, just beautiful boxes. I, I don't know what to like, just custom high end boxes for watch boxes, um, human orders, uh, just beautiful boxes that shows you a lot about veneering a lot of his techniques of using like for instance moisture resistant mdf for the for the panels and the veneers them and uh uses really super high-end hardware it's just a fantastic feed very inspirational and I, i've bookmarked so many of, of of the project process photos for a future reference and it it, it makes me want to get out there and build one of these high-end boxes or, or try because I highly doubt I could replicate some of these very beautiful work. Hawthorne fine boxes. What about you guy? Uh, my pick this week is Joey chalk from King post timberworks. And Joey's a furniture maker from Auckland, New Zealand. He does a lot of built in stuff. He also makes a lot of fine furniture projects and uh, he also is on a podcast called the Shop Stool Podcast, which is a, a good listen. He does some great stuff. He posts a lot on his on his Instagram feed. He does some interesting things here and there where he he tries new things. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Again, King Post Timberworks. Anyways, I think that's going to do it for the show. We would like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in search rankings. And, of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. Please remember that this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodwork community. So if you have any woodworking questions you would like answered, just send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. And you can reach me at guyswoodshop.com. And where can you be found at? We? You can find me at alabamawoodworker.com. Sean, where can we find you? Simplecove.com and at Simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. All right. I guess that's it. We'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. See you in a couple. See you.